As I told you last night, these three messages are really of a piece. So if I end last night or this morning and you say, but, 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 give me, give me till later today and then you can come and ask your questions. And by the way, as I said, this is introductory and the intention of this is to get you to ask questions of how you live your life. So there's a lot of things I, I can't tell you, uh, but the Lord wants to give us, uh, as I, I love how Devin often will introduce worship and he'll say, we're, we're here to get a reality adjustment. We tend to shift from what's real to what's illusory and when we come to worship, we finally get things back in the right perspective. And that's what Scripture does to us, and I hope that that will be the thing that happens in these messages I bring you. So let's read verse 10. I'm just going to read verse 10 this time. The Lord is speaking to Ezekiel, and he says, You, son of man, say to the house of Israel... Thus you have said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? How then can we live? How can we live when God's judgments are right and true and bring consequences to those who defy him in his ways? How can we live when we know we are sinners? When you read the prophets, most of us don't like to spend time in the prophets. The prophets are actually fascinating. But you have to take the time to learn a little bit about the background and some of the names and categories they work in. But the drama in the prophets alone makes it worth their Read And so when you read the prophets, the Lord is coming to his people in their actual situation and behavior and bringing his word of truth to them. And often he will catalog for them how they have been sinning against him. And the first sin almost every time that he mentions is the sin of idolatry. Now, an idol is simply an image. That's basically what it means. Idol is an image. It's either a three-dimensional statue, or it's an image on paper, or, you knew this was coming, an image on screens. And that image either represents what you want, or it tells you that if you will only do what it says, it will fulfill your desires apart from God. An idol is a God replacement. So our Lord says, I created all things, I have power over all things, I can do anything, um, and I, as my creation, I tell you to do this. And I make promises with your trust and obedience that will come to your life. An idol says the same things. Now the Israelites thought 
that they could worship both God and idols. They thought that despite their many sins, simply by being numbered among God's people, they were good with God. Christians do this too. I grew up in a Christian family, gone to church all my life. Doesn't matter how I live, I'm good with God. So you see this in the chapter where our focus verse appears. The Israelites are saying, if one man, Abraham, could possess the land, certainly they, who are the many children of Abraham, can possess the land again today. So even though the Babylonians control it now, they're going to get it back. There's lots of them, and remember, they are children of Abraham. Look at the Lord's response in in chapter 33, verse 25. Therefore, the Lord says to Ezekiel, say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood. Now, that's a reference to eating um, an animal that has not had the blood drained out of it, believing that the blood would bring life to you, the, the animal's life would come into you. So that was the idea behind eating flesh with blood. And you lift up your eyes to your idols and shed blood. In other words, you're violent to other people. Shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? He's saying, just because you trace your lineage to Abraham, and there are a lot of you, you presume that you will avoid judgment. Your sins have stored up for you the wrath of God. So we have to ask the question, what is driving these people that they are moving in the direction of erecting and submitting to these idols? What has driven them to a place where they have invited the judgment of God? And the answer is that They are driven by their idols. Every sin is driven by a God replacement. Our nation, in her many sins and injustices, is driven by her idols. Now, one of the first things I want you to see is that idolatry is not a standalone sin. And our founders thought, our founders of our country thought we could divide the Ten Commandments in half. So the first four commandments are about the worship of God, no idols, uh, devote one day in seven to the Lord. Um, and we thought we could ignore that part of the Ten Commandments. And then we could live together and we'd all keep the other parts of the Ten Commandments, that we could have a country where murder and theft and stealing and adultery and lying, those things could be legislated against and that would make for a happy society. But it doesn't work that way. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, John, Uh, Americans do not worship idols. We are materialists. We are atheists. We don't make images and bow down to them. Well, just because we might 
deny any transcendent spiritual ruler, that doesn't mean we don't create images that promise us what we crave. Our world is filled with images promising us rewards if we'll just do what they require. Watching a Major League Baseball game the other night, there was images moving across the screen, and the message of the images was, if you buy that luxury car, you get the luxury woman in the short dress who's sitting in the passenger seat. It's an image. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. We all know that it doesn't work that way. But that's the kind of desire that the advertiser, the car maker, intends to create in you is that that's the kind of life you will get. If you buy the insurance policy, you will avoid the images of destruction played out on the screen. Our politicians display images of themselves being kind to children, standing with our military, visiting disaster sites. All these images promise a leader who will watch out for your kids and protect us from invasion and deliver us from disaster. I, I think if we, we could spend all day together and just go round the room and come up with examples of how these images make promises to us. They promise, though, what only God can give. So we are surrounded by idols. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, Corinth was filled with idols. They were actually in temples. They didn't have screens back then, so they couldn't multiply them the way they would have if they had. Um, and so the Israel, I mean, the, the Christians in Corinth, all their lives had been doing business and going to these temples because they were temples slash restaurants. If you want to go out for a nice meal, go to the temple. And they do business meetings in these temples. And sometimes the meeting would involve making some form of a sacrifice or libation to a god. And so the Apostle Paul has to deal with this problem in the Corinthian church. And he's saying, you can't participate in that. But he also wants them to know that idols are fake. They are lies. So he says two things about idolatry uh, that I think it's important for us to see. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he says this, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Okay, so Paul's saying, look, idols, they're all fake. They have no existence. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the idol. It's, it's nothing. Meat sacrificed to idols. You know, abracadabra does nothing to the meat. It's still good meat. Enjoy. But then in chapter 10, he's telling them, you can't participate in these rituals that are devoted to an idol. And here's how he says why. He says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. Okay? The food and the idol are nothing. What I imply, he says, is what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons. So, demons, evil spiritual forces, work through the image to get you to do and believe things 
that are either contrary to God's word or a replacement for what God promises to give you. So it's really important that you see the two. You see that an idol is nothing, but that when people invest their attention and their hopes and their desires in the idol, demons work through that object to get their affection, attention, and faith. It really is a matter of faith. Who will obey the image? Will you trust its promises? When you trust a false image, the image may be nothing in itself, but it is animated by the promises of demons. And you cannot worship both God and demons. So what's important to note? I want to come back to an idea I introduced a few minutes ago. What is important to note is that when we abandon the worship of the one true God for idols, other evils come in their wake. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses Israel in the wilderness as a model. You remember the story. Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God. He's gone a long time. They're wondering, is he ever going to come back? So they say, listen, here we are out of Egypt. We need a God. So they make a calf idol. And this is what Paul describes what they do before that golden calf idol. The people sat down to eat and drink before the idol, and they rose up to play. So they participated in the idol ritual, and then they rose up to play, and then Paul writes, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So Paul, and Moses as well, show us that there is a direct line from idolatry to fornication. We are just as vulnerable as the Israelites, as the Corinthians. We are surrounded by idols. The demons who speak through them fill the air. Okay, now if you don't want to call them demons because you've got some kind of horror movie vision of what demons are, uh, Paul also uses the phrase principalities and powers. And they work through images. They work on the news, on Instagram, on the Disney Channel, in your classroom, and your workspace. Now, I think we need to expand our ideas. Some of you have, we've been together for more than 25 years, and you remember we talked a lot back then about the idols of the heart. Do you remember that? And that was a quotation from Ezekiel 14. And Ezekiel is telling the Israelites, you've taken these idols into your heart. But the way we taught it, I think, was um, reductionistic in that we said, well, if you have a, a... a besetting sin, a repeated sin, you know, a sin related to anger or lust. Uh, There's an idol driving you. There's something you believe, and you need to identify what that idol is so you can tear down that idol and stop that practice of sin. And that, that can be a helpful way to look at our sins because our sins have many things that animate them. Uh, and it can be helpful to see that. But what happened in that is that we reduced idolatry just to the things that cause us to commit sins that harm us or harm other people. We're surrounded by many more idols than just those, and a lot of times I think they animate us in directions 
that nobody would notice, including ourselves. I want to give you one example of a ruling idol in American society. I think you, it's important you see this one. We don't talk about him much. Jesus concludes the parable of the money manager with these words. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, that's a translation, and that word money is not the typical word that the New Testament uses for wealth or possessions. There are other, there's a number of other words Jesus could have used there. The word he used is the word mammon. Mammon. And he says you can't serve mammon. Now, I don't know anybody who opens up their bank statement and says, I worship you bank statement. How can I serve you today? So why would Jesus say you can't serve God and Mammon. Well, he's personalizing mammon. Mammon becomes an idol. It promises you things that it can give you if you will just follow its ways. So wealth becomes personalized. And I think that mammon is a lot like the idols that the Corinthians would sit before. The meat offered to them in the actual statues, statues in the temples in Corinth are meaningless. They're nothing, Paul says, until a demon comes and invests meaning into them. Mammon says, here is your life. Here is your safety. Here is your escape from hardship. Here is your access to health and to pleasure. So you move from being a steward of God's good gift to you to be used to His glory and honor, however He wants, to being a worshiper and a slave of mammon. Now this is hitting a lot closer to home, I think, for all of us. I'm of the retirement age, and... Investment counselors would say I'm underfunded. Then you read further and find out 80% of America is underfunded. Um, and there are certain practices and demands made upon me so that I will not be underfunded and end up poor and penniless in a gutter somewhere in Gaithersburg <laughs> with no money. And so Mammon begins to tell me, you, you've got a hoard. Mammon begins to tell me, you have to change this and change that. I can't bow down to that. But you see, we think we can have it both ways. Mammon is an idol that drives us as a nation. Just spend 30 minutes listening to WTOP and tell me how many things, how many segments, either ads or news items, don't refer to money some way connected to money. Mammon is more than money. Mammon is a God who promises all manner of life and joy and safety and security if you will only accumulate wealth and spend it on yourself. Mammon gave rise to plantation slavery in the southern United States. 
You worship that God, you excuse injustices, and it leads you to enslaving others. Mammon becomes the justifier of abortion. That unwanted child will deny his mother the opportunity to finish her degree and find a good job and earn the money that makes her dream lifestyle become possible. We cannot separate idolatry from human injustice. That's the point I want you to see, okay? So there are idols surrounding us, and we listen to them, and sometimes they're so common in our land that we follow them, but they can lead us into other sins. So the fundamental sin is idolatry. The fundamental sin is you don't need God, we got better. And that proceeds to all manner of human sin and oppression. And it leads to, as we saw in verse 10, it leads to despair, which ultimately leads to death. So the Israelites, as they come to realize that their nation, their culture, everything they trusted in is collapsing, they say, we are rotting away. But there's another way. We don't have to be subject to idols. Just as our sins can be forgiven, though we may have to live with painful outcomes, so we can live through coming judgment, not only with our sins forgiven, not only with the hope of heaven, but with a life filled with joy today. And that's where we're heading. The path to a life characterized by joy begins with repentance and faith. God's response to the Israelites' despairing conclusion that they're rotting away is to declare to them that the death they fear is not inevitable. Look at verse 11 again, chapter 33. Again, the Lord is telling Ezekiel to say this to the Israelites. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. There's that word again. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? She's saying, you don't got to die. You don't got to end your life in despair. You can live. But it requires turning. Turning. Turning from your evil ways. Now, the idea of turning back or turning around in your ways is central to the biblical concept of repentance. Repentance means you turn away from your sinful thoughts and deeds so that you can turn to the Lord. A lot of people only get part one. Oh, being a Christian, you know, you can't sin. You got to stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing the other thing. No, the Lord says, look, those idols, they've been leading you into death. Turn around, look at me, follow me, and I'll let you live. That's the promise. To live requires faith. You must believe that the Lord will deliver on his promise of life, so you turn to him. Here he makes a promise of life following repentance, and he stakes the promise on his very existence. He begins it by saying, as I live. So if I'm God and control all things, control you, and the only source of life in this world, I'm making this promise based on that, based on my nature in that way. 
In the 15 chapters that follow Ezekiel 33, God fills in the details of how this life will come about. And I'm going to summarize them for you because I think they'll be helpful. I want you to notice that each of these things God says He'll do, it's a gift. It's something He does. Repentance and faith is just a response to what He's already given. So He's not saying, okay, you were a slave to these idols. Now you're going to enslave yourself and be miserable in serving Me. No, it doesn't work that way. He says, here's the gift. All you have to do is turn and respond. First thing he says, chapter 34, he will rescue his people from false leaders and set over them one true shepherd, a king from the house of David, and we know who that is. Again in chapter 34, he says he'll make a covenant of peace with them. He will no longer be at war with them, no longer have a broken relationship. There will be unity and harmony between them. In chapter 36, he says, I'm going to remove your hard heart and give you a living heart filled with my spirit, which will empower you then to obey. In chapter 37, he says, though my people look like they're just a, a, a nation of dry and rotting bones on a desert plain, I am going to make them come alive again. I'm going to raise them from the dead as my people. In chapters 38 and 39, he says he will protect them from the most violent invasions that they could ever imagine. In chapters 40 through 48, he says he will come to live with them in their land, a land where each family has a place and the water that flows from his presence will produce abundant fruit everywhere it goes. These are marvelous promises and pictures of the things that our hearts long for. And yet we walk through and live in a society that says no, those things are false. We've got better for you. The first step in learning how to live, how should we then live, is to turn to Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection become the reality that obliterates the promises of all idols. Jesus has conquered death. Idols lead you into death. Jesus has conquered those idols. And so, when we see him in his resurrection, we see the reality that obliterates the promises of all idols, all images, all false gods that promise life and happiness, but lead only to despair and death. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He carried in his body on the cross the fury of God's wrath for our sins, so we no longer have to fear the judgment of a second death. He makes a covenant of peace with us. He will not wage war with us. He unites us to himself. He now leads us to green pastures and quiet waters. He holds the wolves of this world, the devil and his false prophets at bay. He raises us from spiritual death. And death, and one day will raise our bodies from the dead. Gives us his spirit, transforms our hearts of stone to hearts beating with his life and word. His spirit gives us power to obey his commands. And he removes from us the uncleanness of our sins. The devil and all his minions 
be they alluring prostitutes or violent oppressors, are all under the power of Jesus Christ and doomed to defeat. So repentance is a way of life. It's it's not a a one-time entrance. We are continually being called away and start to drift. And then the Lord said, no, turn back. I'm over here. Those are lies. Take you to bad places. This is life and truth and will lead you to the best place imaginable. The good news is that Jesus has already accomplished the defeat of the devil and the judgment of death for our sins. This is the only place where our faith can rest. So our, 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 our requirement is not to create something new or to do some heroic work to make ourselves worthy. It's just to respond to the work already done for us. Now, the hard thing about that is that we still live in the world. (laughs) And it can be really hard. As I said yesterday, the judgments that have fallen on the peoples of the world repeatedly in history, God restraining nations and people from their evil, he tolerates that evil for just so long, and then he brings judgment. Well, his people who live as exiles among those nations experience those judgments with the rest of the nation. Not only that, we are subject to bodily weakness. Not only that, we are emotionally Weak, mentally, we're not sharp as we'd like to think we could, should be. And so we go through this life suffering and facing difficulties. But to quote Charles Bridges, difficulties heaped upon difficulties. Some of us can relate to those heaps. Difficulties heaped upon difficulties will never rise to the level of the promises of God. And so we live by faith. We live by turning. It's a continual turn. And we groan. Romans 8. You know this text. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that's seen, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, so we've gone from, in the first session, seeing a world under judgment, and we're a part of that world, and now we've gone to, God does not delight in bringing judgment. He, he doesn't, it's not so like, I just can't wait till next April, I'm going to wipe them all out. No, that's not his heart. His heart is always continually, I want to give you life, I want you to live. And so the first step is to turn. Turn from idols, turn to the Lord and his reality and the reality of his problems, of his promises. But the question remains, 
Once our sins are forgiven, once we've turned, once God's judgment for our sins has been removed from us, once we've been cleansed, how do we live in this fallen world under judgment? How do we live? So when Schaefer wrote his book that I mentioned yesterday, it seemed he was implying we have to turn from the idols of the day. But what disappointed me in Schaefer, and this is not to blame him, I think the man did a great work and a huge help to me. Uh, how do you live day to day? How do you live in a society whose images are continually, you know, we carry these boxes in our pockets that are, they're, they're, they're little idol transmitters. And we're, we're, we're subject to them, but we got to use them. We got to use them to work. We got to use them to buy and sell stuff now. How do we live with that? How do we live in a society where mammon is the assumed God? How do we live? And I think the question is not just how do we stop doing bad stuff? How do we live a really good life? Can you live a happy life in a society where you groan waiting for the redemption of your body? And I have been searching this out. Nancy and I have sought to establish a household that lived where the life of God. I've sought, as I've had responsibility for churches and leading churches throughout my life, to create a context where life is lived and demonstrated and there is joy and happiness. And, well, that's the topic of the third session. <laughs> so with that, let's pray. Lord, would you please teach us and open our eyes to the influences around us that animate us? For we're all different and we're all offered a host of idols, making promises. I, I pray that you would make us aware of this and sensitive to it, not just sensitive to it so we can turn, but that you would show us that you are true and you are enough and you are good, and you give life. Would you please show us this? Open our eyes to this. I pray for all of us here that as we are made aware by your Spirit of lies we've believed, promises that we've pursued that lead to only despair and death, I, I, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would fill us with with the desire and then the ability to turn and put our trust in you. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear your heart, your broken heart over the broken condition of the people of your creation and that you take no delight in the death of the wicked, but that you really love us and want what's best for us, that we should so we ask you this trust you for this and sing to you now in response to this and we come to you we say it again and again Lord that we come in the name of Jesus Christ clothed in his righteousness already our sins paid for new life given thank you